Coronavirus New Zealand, a daily stuff podcast. I gave you one job. What, what do you mean? Yesterday, while I was finishing off the edit, I asked you to keep an ear on the 4pm Prime Minister's press conference in case there were any significant announcements to get into that episode. I, I did, and I, I got the numbers. Mm-hmm. I got the evacuation of the Kiwis from Peru. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the main story. W- w- what do you mean? What was? The Prime Minister announced that the Easter Bunny is an essential worker, and we didn't have it in our show. Oh, sorry. Not accepted. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Tuesday the 7th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm an apologetic Eugene Bingham. We bring you the latest news as well as observations of life under lockdown each day. It's been a hailstorm for those in the coronavirus leadership roles today. We woke to news that Health Minister David Clark had not only been off riding his mountain bike, he'd also taken his family to the beach. And in these times, a trip to the beach can ruin your career. In Scotland, the Chief Medical Officer, Dr Catherine Kaylewood, resigned after making two trips to her second home during the British lockdown. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is in intensive care. Seems his coronavirus symptoms have got worse. Yeah, my son wandered into my room this morning while he was brushing his teeth and said, imagine if I'd come to you a year ago and said, in a year's time, the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson will have just gone into intensive care because of a global pandemic. And yeah, he's got a point. The, world, the world's kind of strange. Later in the show, we talk to Dr. Helen Petousis-Harris about vaccines. What are they and how they developed? And she's got a bit of a warning. Once a vaccine is available and governments are competing to buy it, she says it's going to get a little bit feral out there. But first, what's happened today, Eugene? Well, there are 54 new cases in New Zealand since yesterday. Significantly, that's the smallest increase in two weeks, despite a whole lot more testing. The total number of cases is 1,160. 12 people are in hospital, one in critical condition in intensive care. Meanwhile, slightly amazing news from China. They're saying that yesterday they had zero deaths from COVID-19, the first time they've reported that since January. Back in New Zealand, we learn that hundreds of people have broken lockdown rules in the past 12 days. 263 people have been warned and 16 are facing charges. Air New Zealand is proposing to make 387 of its 1,500-odd pilots redundant. Yeah, these are really tough times for businesses, whether they're large or small, and obviously for their employees as well. Even before lockdown, business confidence was dropping through the floor because of COVID-19, according to a survey that's done every quarter by the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research. Susan Edmonds is a staff business journalist who's read the survey, and she's also been talking to bank economists about what's on their mind. Minds? Hi, Susan. So tell us, where are you calling in from and how is the peace and calm of your work from home? (laughs) I'm calling from Whangarei because I actually always work from home. So this is just like any other day except that I have my three and my five-year-old at home, Ah. which is a challenge. Yeah, yeah. So you, of the bank economists that you spoke to, were there any who were in any way gung-ho, like let's get back to work as fast as humanly possible? I don't think anyone's saying we need to get back as fast as we can, but we just need to be conscious of what we're giving up every day or week that we're not working because there's that kind of constant trade-off. And at the moment we're saying, you know, four weeks of basically shutting down maybe a third of the economy, it's a lot of economic pain, but hopefully that will give us the health outcomes that we're looking for. And I'm really glad that I'm not the one making those decisions because it's a horrible trade-off to make, isn't it? Mm, Really hard. Is, yeah. is anyone saying there should be a change in direction like right now or are people talking about 
once we're out of this four-week period? Uh, yeah, people are saying that like we could do four weeks if it got to eight or 12, things could start to get really nasty. The, the BNZ made an interesting point. It's it's not the economy versus life and death because if the economy's ruined, people die. But if there's death and mayhem from the virus, the economy can't operate properly anyway. What are some of the non-COVID health problems they're talking about if the economy is squashed too hard for too long? People say it's only money, don't worry about it, more important things. But actually money issues create other issues like we might have mental health problems and more suicides. We might have higher child poverty rates in future, which would then you know, create problems, health problems and potential death of its, like, of its own. And so it's, I guess you get to that point where you're like, these are the COVID deaths and these are the other deaths. And mm. is one more important than the other, you know? There are some hard numbers being collected around this unemployment, GDP, um, business confidence, all those kind of things. Can you give us a little bit of an idea of some of those numbers about the economic uh, harms that are already happening or are expected imminently? Yeah, well, we've had economists say we might have 200,000 people out of work. And the, we had the survey of business opinion this morning, which has shown a pretty dramatic slump even before anyone knew that we were going into the level four lockdown. So I don't think you can overstate the impact that this is having on the economy. And I mean, obviously having that subsidy from the government is really helpful, but it is only paying wages. It's not paying any of the other costs of doing business or maintaining their premises or anything like that. So we're just treading water and the longer we tread water, the further back I think we're going. Away from economics, one of the big stories in business obviously is what's essential and what's not. It's a bit of a, a moving feast. So yesterday we heard about $600 dressing gowns and expensive track pants being being deemed essential. So the lines are, lines are blurry. Um, there must be other businesses looking at this saying, look, we must be essential too or we'd like to be essential. Uh, what are you hearing around the business community in terms of uh, frustrations or or hopes around that? Well, I feel really sorry for the butchers and people like that who had all that all that meat in their freezers, and now they're going to have to get rid of it. And you know, that's fifty thousand dollars worth of stock gone straight away. And it does seem, in some ways, arbitrary that you can have Mad Butcher with its groceries and meat, and that can't open, but the supermarket can. But then also, I think there's this kind of reputation thing that some of them are having to balance because at the moment you can apply to be an essential service. But sometimes there's a bit of a backlash. I saw a retailer this morning who'd applied to be allowed to sell essential clothing. And on their Facebook page, it was like, this is an essential. You're putting people at risk. So I think it's a, it's, it's a tricky thing to weigh up. And I don't think the government's been very clear on this at all. It's been, I think it's one of the weaker parts of their response. Susan Edmonds, thank you very much. Thank you. It's a ritual now, isn't it? Checking in at 1pm for the latest case numbers. And you don't need to have an advanced understanding of maths to see that today's 54 new cases sounds a lot better than yesterday's 67 cases and even better than the previous day's 89. And when you remember that we were possibly expecting exponential growth in those numbers, you've got to start feeling a bit optimistic about how New Zealand is doing. There's a new piece from Stuff. It's by Charlie Mitchell, Felipe Rodriguez and Andy Fires, which points to a few more numbers that are worth taking off. Four new numbers, to be precise. To be clear, these numbers are based on f the figures from Monday, but they're, they're still pretty close to that now, and they're, they're still really useful, I think. So, number number one. 20. That's the number of people currently believed to have got COVID-19 from community transmission. That number's now 22. Either way, that figures are about 2% of the current count, which is really low by world standards. Number number two. 
0.09%. That's the case fatality rate as per Monday. One death out of 1,100-ish cases. One of the lowest CFRs in the world. This is essentially because our COVID patients have been typically way younger than in other countries, so they're coping relatively well. The third number's a bit of a cheat, really. It's, it's actually a date. 25 slash 3. So the point being, New Zealand went quite fast into lockdown after its first case was identified relative to many countries. Some say, sure, it could have been a little bit faster, but we're, we're still kind of ahead of the pack on that. And the fourth number... 1.8%. As of Monday, that was the positive test rate. How many cases found per 100 tests? It's effectively a benchmark of how widely the testing is being used. The lower the number, the more generous the testing regime. And the countries that have done really well, like South Korea, seem to have had really big testing programs. And so those are the numbers that for now are reasons to be you know, almost slightly cheerful. 20, 0 0.09, 25 3, and 1.8. No planes in the sky, so it's slim pickings for plane spotters, but some rare birds still. Two large Lufthansa planes have been spotted at Christchurch Airport, and the German airline Condor made its first ever appearance in New Zealand. And this is all part of the German repatriation system that's underway. Auckland Airport also went on social media and highlighted a Swiss International Airlines arrival and an incoming Austrian Airlines flight. Yeah, it's kind of like they don't really need an arrivals board anymore. They can just tweet a couple of times a day saying, hey, there's a flight landing. <laughs> What's really interesting about the story is it was written by Tom Kitchen, whose coronavirus cough featured on the show yesterday. He's well enough to be back at work. Welcome back. Good news. Hey, sick of Monopoly? Checkers? What else do people play? Uh, Risk? There's a new parlour game in town. Going online and searching for the employers of everyone you know on the MSD wage subsidy website. Okay, that's a, <laughs> that's a really terrible game. Slightly creepy. Um, but... MSD is publicly posting all the names of employers who are tapping the wage subsidy fund and by how much. Top lines at the moment, Harvey Norman has taken $12.7 million for its 1,850 staff. Over $5.3 billion has been paid out in the last two weeks. Rule breakers, beware. So we had that public health notice that went out on the weekend that since then surfers are being busted on the beaches. So are beach-loving cabinet ministers, by the way. There's that Ruby Princess cruise ship that had a bunch of coronavirus cases, and now the Prime Minister is on their case, looking at whether there's any legal case. That's a lot of cases in that sentence. But it doesn't stop there. Yeah, there's some drama, been drama playing out on a local community Facebook page in, in my end of town. It's almost a philosophical debate, I suppose you could say. The, the issues at stake are those of free will and authoritarianism, the power of the mob. What I'm trying to say is that everyone's dobbing everyone in for lockdown breaches. Although it's obviously directly serious and we should all be following the rules so we can get this bloody lockdown over as soon as possible. It's also kind of funny at times. The pinnacle arrived over the weekend when it was reported on this Facebook community group that not only were people sunbathing, but one person was sunbathing topless. Mm. You never knew the North Shore could get this exciting, did you? Anyway, after a frenzy of back and forth, a few people called for calm. There was one post saying, I know we're all concerned about the rules of lockdown, but for the sake of community peace and for people's privacy, can we please stop posting pictures of people on the beaches and so forth? And somebody else said, could we please have a break from the endless, I can't believe people aren't observing the lockdown, check out these terrible people in action today posts that seem to utterly dominate this group at the moment. They go on to say, no less than our Prime Minister has said we should be kind. So maybe take a break. Be kind. Inbox update. Yesterday we talked about the email from Debbie Holmes, who sent us an email asking for ideas about how to support her local cafe. Remember that? 
we had a couple of people get in touch, including Sarah Wakefield and John Marshall, alerting us to a great resource. John wrote, I had a similar thought as the person who wanted to donate to the local cafe and found this site, which enables exactly that. It's such a nice idea and well-made site, and it's soscafe.nz. We've had an update from Debbie, who says that her local cafe has joined the SOS Cafe site. She says, I will be purchasing one every week to continue my support. I guess it's my choice as to whether I redeem them. I think the idea is that with those is that you pay for a coffee that you're not going to get yet, and then later in the future you can redeem them. Yeah. But as she says, you could um, turn that into a gift. Mm. Don't forget you can email us, viruspod at stuff.co.nz. We're especially keen to hear from Kiwis Abroad. Record a voice memo of a minute or two telling us your name, where in the world you are, and how you're getting on. We've got a couple of them already, Adam. Excellent. And we'll play them soon, but it would be great to hear some more. One more email from today. Eugenio Enamorati has a suggestion for the Plague playlist, bit of a dark one, Myxomatosis Radiohead. An excellent choice. But what we're going to play is another newly minted COVID-19 song. This is it. Baked potato changed my life. Baked potato showed me the way. It's something of a smash hit, this one, actually. Matt Lucas, you might know him from Little Britain or years before that from Shooting Stars, has re-released a, an unusual airworm that he wrote years ago called Thank You Baked Potato. So, so this time around, it's a fundraiser for Hot Meals for UK NHS workers. It's already spawned a, a frenzy of retweets and uh, cover versions, and uh, I think there's an animated one, and there's uh, even Matt Lucas has done some kind of Skype or Zoom duet of it with Gary Barlow, I believe. He's, he's one of those boy band chaps, eh? Anyway, um, Britain has essentially lost its mind over this song. Big potato! And since hearing it earlier... Uh, so is Eugene, I understand. Yeah, Thank You Baked Potato became the saying of lunchtime around these parts in our bubble today, and I have been instructed to cease forthwith from saying, Thank You Baked Potato. Lockdowns, flattening the curve, social distancing, the whole world is doing this stuff because we want to buy ourselves time. Time maybe to find some treatments that might work against COVID-19, but most importantly, time to develop a vaccine. Dr. Helen Petusis-Harris lives and breathes vaccines. She did her PhD in vaccinology. She chairs the WHO's Global Advisory Committee on Vaccine Safety. And she's an associate professor at the University of Auckland in the Department of General Practice and Primary Healthcare. So, Helen, we always start with the hard questions. What is a vaccine? Oh, wow, that is the big question, isn't it? What is a vaccine? I guess when you think about modern vaccines, they're a biological preparation that prepares your body to to respond um, effectively to an infection should you come across it in the future. So it's a bit like installing antiviral software on your computer. How do they work? By and large, they all work by prompting your body to make an immune response against either a weakened form of the pathogen or a fragment or something. So your body responds by making a variety of, uh, of goodies, including antibodies, which we, which we often refer to when we're talking about immunity. When you say including antibodies, are there other things? Oh, all sorts of goodies, actually. Things like, you know, perhaps you've heard of T-cells. 
um, and B cells, for example. No. No? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've heard of T cells with, with respect to HIV. I've never heard of a B cell, though. Yeah, well, the B cells in part are the cells that produce the antibodies, actually. So you've got to, you've got to make some B cells before you can make some antibodies. So, so they're, they're a class of cells not unlike T cells. And, uh, and you, you hear about T cells in HIV, and the reason they're so important is because those are the cells that HIV virus infects. Right. I'm going to get to COVID-19 eventually, but very generally speaking, how do you make a vaccine? There's a whole lot of approaches, um, and I guess um, the, the first one is is using a, a, li- a live but weakened form of the pathogen that can't cause disease, but it's been weakened, but your body still sees it um, and, and makes a response. You could have a dead or an activated version in this case, so it can't replicate or anything. There are subunits, so fragments or just parts, things that represent part of the pathogen. And then you start getting into the newer, fancier kind of stuff like nanoparticles and stuff like that. Tell me a little bit about nanoparticles. I haven't heard of them before in virology. Nanoparticles are generally very, very tiny. And an example of like a nanoparticle, what you might call a nanoparticle vaccine, is actually the human papillomavirus vaccine where you've got just tiny little parts of the virus that in um, during manufacturing come together to, to form what looks like um, a tiny little HPV virus. But in fact, it's just just a few of the little proteins that come together to mimic the actual whole virus. There's actually... Nothing else in it, no, no genetic material or anything. So there's all variety. There's a whole lot of varieties of things that might fall into that category, and then there are things called viral vector templates and also DNA and RNA vaccines. So they're getting right into the front line of new stuff. Right. So COVID nineteen, what's going on globally? All of the above. <laughs> I can tell you that. I think yes. we've, we've got examples going on of all of our traditional approaches and all of the newest approaches. Right. So putting your horse commentator hat on, what are the runners and riders? I guess the front runners at the moment, um, there, there are, I think, Actually, a third just went into clinical, um, into humans. But let's just talk about the first two. One, one is what you call a messenger RNA vaccine. And the other one is a viral template uh, vaccine. So those are the, the two that have been first in humans. Can you uh, describe in a bit more detail both of those, those two things? Okay, so with, with a, um, an RNA vaccine, they're called messenger RNA vaccines, they basically cut directly to getting your body to make the vaccine by introducing into directly into you the gene for the bit of protein off the virus that's of interest. That if you make a response to that protein, your the antibodies against that protein should protect you against COVID. And in this case, your body actually makes that protein rather than having it introduced in the vaccine um, more traditionally. And so that, that's sort of what a messenger RNA vaccine does. There's a number of companies working on that approach, but the first one to get it into humans, the company's called Moderna, and they're in the United States. And the second one, where, where is that and what is that? 
So the other one is a what we sort of call viral template. So if you take a virus that's well-known, uh, some of them like a um, so the adenovirus or, or some well-characterized virus, and you snip a bit out of that uh, viral genome and put the bit that you're interested in from, in this case, COVID, into that virus and use that virus to deliver the, the protein of interest, if you like. So they're a bit like chimeric viruses. How are they doing all this snipping? Is this the, this CRISPR stuff we've been hearing about in the past few years where you pretty much you know, write the DNA you want or the, the molecule you want on a computer and hit print? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. You're synthesising, uh, especially like with the RNA vaccines and also the DNA vaccines. Those are synthesised. You're not growing viruses and then extracting the genetic material. You're actually uh, synthesising it. So why are we being told it's going to take a year or more before we might have a vaccine? Well, I mean, it's incredibly fast for getting a vaccine. We, we're not without experience. So, so for example, with the, the viral templates, we already, um, there's Ebola vaccines, for example, that now have had um, quite a bit of use now. And the um, RNA vaccines, there were also being work done for MERS and SARS with those types of vaccines and also some human trial experience there. So there's a little, there's a bit to start with already. So you're not completely starting from scratch. Let's say everything goes incredibly well and these one of these human trials just totally nails it. What are the processes between that and the day that I get a jab in my arm in New Zealand? So assuming that your that your clinical program, your 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 early phase, phase one, then phase two, and then ultimately phase three, which is, you know, getting getting into a lot of people, getting into thousands of people. They what's happening this time. Um, is that working alongside very closely all of that other regulatory agencies because those are the agencies that need to make those assessments of every aspect of this development and all the outcomes in order to licence and make that, you know, say, yes, you you have permission to use that vaccine and and deploy it. So then, uh, yeah, how does it get here? There's probably going to be a lot more than one vaccine and right. there's going to be a lot more than one facility making vaccine. So upscaling will be, you know, important. And again, plans to upscale these are happening alongside these trials, which is not normally what happens. So it's like you're overlapping all of these things so that you're ready to go to the next stage as soon as you've successfully completed what needs to be done. What could fail? What might go wrong? Pretty much anything you can imagine and a whole bunch of things you haven't thought of as well, probably. Um, they can fall over at any stage. Probably the most common is is that, you know, something looks like it raises really nice antibodies and animals and you get to humans and um, it doesn't. Or it, it does and you get a little further down the track and you find that the immune response that's being mounted actually doesn't protect against the disease after all. Or that there's a, a concern about safety that you, you see somewhere down the track as well. And um, those are really the main things that cause something to fall over. In the UK and in Italy, there's talk about giving special rights to people who have recovered from COVID-19 and are now immune so they can, say, go back to work earlier and they'll be safe for themselves and for everybody else. How might that work? Does that make sense? Yeah, that that does does make some sense. I on especially on a on a like when you're thinking on the population scale, not the individual. Uh, at the moment, I think the general consensus is that if you have this, 
infection, you'll be uh, immune for at least a decent period of time afterwards to reinfection. We don't know for sure, but, but that seems to be the general consensus. Therefore, you are an individual that cannot be infected and cannot transmit this infection. So in a way, you are contributing to what we call herd immunity. Just one last thing. We saw recently there were reports of the US and also China attempting to buy German companies that were working on promising-looking vaccines, which brought up the whole spectre of the world competing in not necessarily cooperative ways around distributing it. How is New Zealand placed relative to the rest of the world? Where do we sit in the queue? Is there a queue? I think that it is a really good and very complicated question, and that there, there, there are. There, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a little feral out there. I should imagine in some respects. Um, but there's also a lot of agencies, global now global agencies, that are, are interested in making sure that vaccines are available for those who need vaccines most, regardless of the ability to pay. Now, New Zealand's well placed in that it, it has an ability to pay for vaccines. It's a small market. I don't know whether that's an advantage or a disadvantage. It depends, you know, whether you're coupling with other markets, I guess, or, you know, an, an easy an easy market to fulfil in order for. It's very hard to know how that's going to play out because you also don't know at this stage who's going to be making these vaccines, where, which vaccine we're going to decide we want, mm. that we want to buy for our population because it's likely that we'll potentially have choices as well. So it also means that we might, we might be in a situation where we've really got our disease under control. And, you know, that would be a nice situation to be in, uh, whereas there might be other places that are in very bad shape. So I guess that's going to reveal itself as we go forward. And, and we, you know, it depends where we find ourselves at, at that time. Helen Petusis Harris, thank you so much for your expertise and information. I feel I know quite a lot more about vaccines than I did 20 minutes ago. Good. <laughs> Thank you. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Tuesday the 7th of April. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Susan Edmonds, Helen Petusis, Harris, Alex Yu, Catherine George, Patrick Crutzen and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast apps as well as the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. That email again is viruspod at stuff.co.nz. Dai, Jen. <laughs> <laughs>